Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series, Living the Truth, a study in 1 Timothy, with a message entitled, Novelty Teachers and Hair Splitters. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I wonder if you've met someone who just loves to argue. I'm sure you have, and I hope you're not one of them. But there are people who love to believe that they will have the last word and that the wisdom that pours out of their mouths will finally silence the whole world who will then gaze with amazement at the words that come from the wisest person who has ever lived. Men and women will travel to where he is and will exclaim, Oh, the fount of perfect wisdom. And after he's died, people will build a shrine and for generations they will come to adore. And at least so it seems, some surely think about themselves. And for that reason, they inject themselves into every conversation. In just a short order, all the Boers and Philistines will discover that every voice should be hushed while they speak. You know, I sometimes, out of sheer entertainment, will listen to a sports radio call-in program. It's fascinating. Because whether your team wins or loses, well, it's of no lasting consequence. But people phone in, sometimes they're furious at a player who isn't trying hard, or a referee who made a bad call, or a coach who should have been fired months ago, and so on. And some will even go on a rant about a sports commentator who shared an opinion that the caller believes is sheer rubbish, and all the passion around what gets said. Of course, there's the world of politics. Go into any coffee shop and listen as people solve the world's problems. You know, those stupid politicians, why, they don't even know what they're doing. If only I were the king of the country, all problems would soon be ended. And then it's about health care, and then it's about the brand of car that you drive, and the gullible people that drive all that junk. Ah, but here's my favorite. It's about a disagreement one person had with another. And then that one person meets with other friends and recounts the argument blow by blow. It was incredible, all the wise things they said and how utterly moronic the other person was. And I'm sure the other person recounts it quite differently. And I hope you hear me. In every one of us is the urge to be right, to show some area where we saw the truth and where everyone else missed it. Did you know that when it comes to theology and talk about God and about what constitutes true faith, that same urge to be altogether wise and knowing The person who puts everyone else to shame, it's a strong urge indeed. It's hard to confess, as Job did, who said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. You know, William Hendrickson says that the Talmud, that's a Jewish commentary of the Old Testament, has examples of know-it-alls, of novelty teachers and hair splitters. And so the Talmud gives an example of an argument of what's permissible on the Sabbath and what's not. It says someone will ask, Is it permissible on the Sabbath day to throw away the pits of the dates? One person will argue that you can throw away the pits if some of the meat of the date still adheres to it. And the other argues the other way. And then comes the question. If we solve the first matter and agree that we can throw the pits away under some circumstances, then where should they be thrown and how must they be thrown? That is, with the hand or to be spit out with the mouth? Of course, that kind of a conversation is rubbish. But for some, it's a debate that delights them. Hendrickson also goes on to say that the name of a Jewish ancestor and then the oral tradition that was associated with that person 
about what they might have or might not have said was sure to get a vigorous debate going. And while some of us might roll our eyes and wonder how such silliness could form into a serious debate. But think back to my opening example of sports talk radio and the utter nonsense about the various players and fans and coaches and management and sports commentators and the like. Well, the arguments never end, but I hear people engaging in them with all the vigor of people who must believe that this stuff is even remotely important. You know, it's the argument and the showing that they have clearly bested the other, and that's the fount of wisdom. In our study of 1 Timothy, we've been talking about proper behavior in the house of God. In Paul's second and last letter to Timothy, which is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, Paul writes that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone. God's servants must not be argumentative. But we might wonder how that's even possible. I mean, after all, Paul had sent Timothy to the church in Ephesus to charge some of the leaders in that congregation that they are to cease and desist from teaching a different gospel. We'll come back to that theme today. But if that's what Timothy was to do, we have to imagine that in itself could end up in a number of arguments. Now, in my years of pastoral ministry, it did seem that theological quarrels could be around each corner. You know, if I had to deal with people who claimed that unless baptism was done in the name of Jesus only, it wasn't baptism. You know, they were wrong. And that view was connected to a faulty view of the Trinity and of the data that's found in Acts. But I've also heard arguments on everything from, you know, women's roles in ministry to sexuality, to which is the right Bible translation to use, to the work of demons, to whether the communion cup should contain only wine or whether, you know, grape juice can substitute, to the doctrine of the Trinity, to what mode of baptism is biblical. My goodness, it would be easy for any Christian pastor to spend the majority of his time trying to argue with one person after another. And yet, says Paul, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. It's not the mark of Christian leadership to be involved in endless debates and arguments and teasing out the nuance of every theological dispute. The Christian church is not and never will be a debating society. If that were the case, we would quickly divide into factions and soon one group would mock the other. Eventually, champions on each side would arise and, you know, one person would be more popular than the next. Well, with that kind of a background, let's get into our text. I'm reading 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, let's divide our text into three parts. First, let's identify the problem. Second, let's then, behind the problem of false doctrines, is the problem of the person's estimation of himself or herself. And then finally, third, let's talk about the results that would come if we allowed the church to become a debating society. So let's begin at the beginning. Let's identify the problem. Paul's identifying a person who does three things. Number one, they teach a different doctrine. Now, here Paul is using the exact same words that he used when he began the letter. If you go back to 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, we read, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. 
And that word different doctrine is the word that Paul repeats here in chapter 6. Now, back when I spoke on 1 Timothy chapter 1, I translated the word as heterodoxy. It's the opposite of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy refers to the one truth that has been laid down. It means correct teaching. Think of it this way. In mathematics, there are, if you will, orthodox or right answers. Two plus two equals four. That's the orthodox or the correct answer. In the same way, in the Christian faith, there are orthodox answers. What's the nature of God? What's the nature of Jesus? How is a person to be saved from the just consequences of their sins? What happens at the end of the present age? What's the reason for our existence? You may or may not know this, but there are training tools for new believers called catechisms. It will typically have a series of questions and then will give a series of memorized answers. Often it will then show the new believer where in Scripture those answers are to be found, and the point is this, that the answers are not up for grabs or up for argument or up for debate. The answers are the difference between what's true and what's false. But the idea of a different doctrine or heterodoxy is the idea that there can be different answers to the most basic questions of life and faith. And so Paul begins with a warning. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, heterodoxy. So the problem was, number one, if someone teaches heterodoxy, and then we come to number two, if some teach words that do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus, the Greek word for sound is the word that Paul borrowed from medicine. It means healthy, that is, to listen to the words of Jesus and to feed on them, not to argue with them, is spiritual health. And then number three, if someone teaches words that do not accord with godliness. And here the point is that all that is orthodox leads to moral purity. Error, false teaching, arguments about what's true always corrupts morals, the lifestyle, the behavior of believers. I love the expression, the proof is in the pudding. Tell me what is the consequence of any given teaching, and you will learn a great deal about that teaching. That's a key. For many, the most misunderstood truths of the Bible revolve around the reality of heaven and hell. Misshapen by popular culture and misinformation, many Christians fail to have a true understanding of eternity. In response, Dr. John Newfeld and Back to the Bible Canada present a new book, Heaven and Hell. As we believe the truth about eternity is so critical, for the month of November only, this important book is now available for free as our gift. Bruce Ware, professor of Christian theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote about the book, it is arguable that nothing in this life now matters more than knowing what happens then. Although this book is relatively short, it is packed. Readers will find excellent biblical exposition and incisive analysis that will inform their minds and inflame their hearts. To request your copy of Heaven and Hell today or to send a gift to support the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. has identified the problem. There are those who teach heterodoxy. They did in Paul's day, they still do today. They love creating arguments and they love confusing the minds of some. They create chaos 
and they lead people to not take the words of Jesus seriously, and they lead to unholy patterns of living. That's a problem. But now Paul goes on to say, you should understand that the problem is not with the truth. The truth is plain. God has revealed the truth about himself, his word, his son, his gospel, his glory, his plan for the consummation of all things. Learning these truths is not about an endless debating society, as some would have it. So where's the problem? And Paul answers, the problem is with the person who is doing the heterodox teaching. Notice that Paul gives an insight into three things that are true of the person who teaches heterodoxy. Number one, that person is puffed up with conceit. Now, the phrase puffed up with conceit is actually just one word in the Greek. It can also be translated as insanely arrogant. Now, on that note, you might remember that Paul warned about this possible attitude. And if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, that's a part of a passage in which Paul tells Timothy how to decide who might become an elder. Well, verse 6 says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And I have over years noticed a peculiar danger that has befallen young ministers who in their youth experience a great deal of success. They begin to think, as we say today, that they're all that and a bag of chips on top of it. That is to say, they're overwhelmed with themselves. I must be very important, they say. After all, look at what I've achieved. And so they become self-focused. But this also happens to a false teacher. If the false teacher is only saying what others are saying, well, he attracts very little attention. But if he starts to contradict orthodoxy, others might argue with him, and he becomes the center of attention. And now all eyes are on him, and he likes that. He reasons, I really have something very important to say. For every time I speak, the eyes are directed at me. That kind of attitude is a narcotic. It's addictive. The person with this character is a person who is self-absorbed and without the constant attention and even adulation of some, well, they can't exist. Take away from them being at the center of attention, they'll fall into despair. That's the first thing that's true of the person who teaches heterodoxy. Then number two, that person, says Paul, understands nothing. Now, if we're not careful here, we might think that the person that Paul speaks about has either a low IQ or that they're ignorant. But I found this untrue in a great many of heterodox teachers. Some of them are very intelligent scholars who have an ego problem. And so what does Paul mean when he says they understand nothing? Well, the Greek word for understand means to have or gain insight. You know, it was the great Christian teacher, Augustine, who said, we often misunderstand how insight is gained. We think I must understand in order to believe. But, said Augustine, when it comes to the truths of Scripture, we must first believe in order to understand. First submit the mind to God's superior wisdom, and then having said, Lord, if you say it, I submit to it. And once that process is begun, we gain great insight into the truths that are proclaimed. But when we argue with the truth, deeper insight fails us. And that's exactly the problem with the false teachers. Now, finally, the third thing that's true of the person who teaches heterodoxy is that he is an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Another way of saying it, he loves word battles. He loves to argue about words. He loves to split hairs. He loves to end up in quarrels. Have you met someone like that? Every word is parsed. 
You know, I remember some time ago being in a Bible study with a young man who was studying in a seminary. And on one occasion, he gave us his own unique take of what happens to a person after death. He confidently proclaimed that everyone gets a second chance, that there must be a post-death opportunity to come to Christ. You know, people in the group asked him how he got the idea, and then in an interesting fashion, he began to take verses of Scripture and twisted them. Now, remember, he was in seminary. I mean, what happens when he gets a pulpit? What other different doctrines will his fertile mind discover? How long until his ministry ends up as a debating society? Now then, Paul has told us first, this is a problem. It's called heterodoxy. And then second, he's told us the reasons it's a problem. And the reason the problem exists is within the person, the person who wants to be noticed, who has an unhealthy interest in controversies. And now finally, Paul tells us what follows when heterodox teachers are given prominence. Notice that halfway through verse 4, we have the phrase, which produce. That is, says Paul, let me show you the end result that comes from heterodoxy. You know, Jesus once said something very much like that. Matthew 7, 15 to 17. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Now, please see, there is a predictable outcome to the ministry of a false prophet. It always goes in one direction. Take the modern example of liberal theology. Everywhere it is gone, it has been a halfway house out of the church. Once a church becomes liberal, soon it will close its doors. That's always the fruit. But of course, not all false teaching leads to closed doors. Some false teachings grow exponentially, but that too has a certain fruit. It's often self-centeredness, that is, the raising up of human conceit and the denigration of the glory of God. But, says Paul, all heterodox teachers produce at least five fruit. Let's see if we can mention each one. Fruit number one, envy. Of course it does. If the motive for the false teacher is conceit, the fruit will produce envy. It will be a constant fight to stay on top and to be green with envy when others are taking precedent. And it will be the same with their followers. Conceited teachers produce conceited followers who are anxious to get their day in the sun. And by the way, envy is such a horrible taskmaster. It prevents a person from being truly thankful for what God has given him or her. Envy prevents a person from having delight in the successes of others and so prevents them from being a loving person. It's a tool of the evil one to destroy joy. Fruit number two, dissension. This naturally follows from envy. A bitter person is quick to quarrel. A bitter person constantly contradicts others. A bitter person is quick to go to war and to protect their own rights. They're easily offended, and they let others know of it quickly. Look into the face of someone who has a great deal of dissension. You won't find joy. Number three, slander. The Greek word is blasphemies, but here blasphemy is not against God. It's profanity against others. Slander is popular because slander is effective. There are even laws which are meant to punish the slanderers. But slanderers destroy businesses and reputations and causes untold harm to the church. It was slander that men used to have Jesus crucified. Slander is a form of murder, and it continues to exist not through outright lies, 
but through taking a partial truth and then so presenting it to put another person in a negative light. Number four, evil suspicions. It's interesting how one sin builds upon the next. This is the individual who's haunted by what they assume to be the motives of everyone they meet. Why did that person act the way they did? What's the real motive behind that? And what about the time that person said, and you fill in the blank, you know, there's an ulterior motive. And then what did that gesture mean? A person who has evil suspicions is the person who never assumes the best in someone. They assume the worst. The world of their imaginings. Tell them everyone's out to get them. And so with that attitude, a darkness descends on the soul. Number five, this is not just one word. It gets an entire phrase. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. See, the idea of friction is the idea of abrasiveness. There's always something in this person that rubs them the wrong way. They may not even know what it is, but it is so. The friction, the abrasiveness, says Paul, is constant. It's like an incurable disease. The symptoms are endemic. They run into the same problem with person after person. You and I have seen it on, you know, the t-shirt that someone wears or the bumper sticker on cars that simply says, the more people I meet, the more I like my dog. See, I know some people in ministry who have, because of this consistent and continual conflict, taken measures that will prevent people from getting at them. See, the problem is they don't know the problem is not with the people around them. The problem lies in their own minds. They are, in the end of the day, the victims of the heterodoxy they have taught. They're depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And so what do we do with heterodox teachers? If we argue with them, we become like them. The answer must be, we abandon them. We need people not involved in novelty or hair splitting, but people who love the truth. Thanks, John, for your message. You know, I'm wondering, would you say that false doctrine is often the culprit when it comes to controversies within the church? Well, you know, on one hand, you might say not because, you know, the experience of a lot of people is that, you know, it's about, you know, all sorts of things other than that. But if you really checked behind what actually leads to the controversies, we might find that it's a false understanding of God, false understanding of Scripture, or what obedience entails in our lives. Things like that have a greater role than we might think. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Living the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's one 866 
336-3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.